didn't realize well, that's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, and maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that's so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today, when is war justified? My first recollection of war was actually in 1972. The bombings accelerated, and in Vietnam, the war was taking place everywhere. Hmm. My name is Sunny Lay, uh, originally from Vietnam, came to the U.S. as a refugee. Lay was born in 1964, the year the United States officially went to war in Vietnam, backing the South against the Communist North. Lay's about eight years old in this first memory he has of the war. The bombings were happening across the river, and it was hundreds of us standing on this side of the riverbank, watching the bombing like it was fun, like fireworks. So the, the, the helicopter, the way they, they do their bombing run, it, you see a streak and you see the boom, and you see the smoke coming up. We thought it was fun watching it until one of the helicopters got hit and crashed onto this side, nearly you know, killing some of the spectators. That's when we start running. That's when we start realizing the danger. Those of us who came out of war, not a single day goes by that, that we're not impacted, affected by it. What do we as Americans not understand about war? Most of us born in the United States have never experienced it directly, never fled our homes to avoid the bombs of an enemy attack. The majority of us have never fought in a war elsewhere or even sent a loved one into combat. My grandpa fought in World War II, but he never talked about it. My dad was in the Air Force when I was born, but the Vietnam War had already ended, so he never fought. As a journalist, I've interviewed lots of military veterans and families of soldiers who've died. I've been to the war memorials on the National Mall in D.C., read lots of books, watched lots of movies. Those stories affect me, but they're not my story. War is not personal to me. What's the consequence of that, of the most powerful military country in the world, consisting primarily of people with no visceral understanding of what war means, what it does? We're often talking on this podcast about how important it is to make sure we're thinking deeply about topics that we're inclined to avoid. And we try to make sure that we land on a glimmer of optimism, that there is nothing about war that feels good. So instead, we're going to focus on trying to understand what war feels like to the people who live it. We'll also explore when the decision to fight is justified and when it's not. As we started probing this topic, we quickly discovered that it's even more complicated than we imagined. Rarely is going to war clearly the right or wrong choice. Sometimes people whose lives are torn apart by war also wanted that war to happen. We're hoping that by really embracing the nuance here, we'll be more clear-eyed as citizens and voters the next time America has the choice to fight. And because there is so much to cover, we are going to spend two episodes on it. South Vietnam was pretty stable on the surface. Sunny Lay's family lived in a small town in South Vietnam near the border with Cambodia. Because it was not on the front lines of the war, his childhood memories are not traumatic. Mostly they're about the strangeness of American culture. Life was hunky-dory, so rock and roll and Star Trek and what have you began to be part of our way of life, chewing gum and all that stuff. You were pleased, your family then was pleased at the time with the U.S. invasion, with the U.S. being involved in the conflict? Exactly. You saw American medical corps there, engineering corps there, building bridges, hospitals, and of course the, the U.S. soldiers, the ones that worked with the kids, they all had treats with them. Sunny Lay was 11 when the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam and Saigon fell. The North declared victory. Overnight, things changed for the Lay family. My dad was part of the old regime, so part of his punishment was to be sent off to re-education camp, basically a hard labor camp, like a lot of people, like his colleagues and his comrades. 
And so that basically stripped us of our rights and our privileges and everything. Then the U.S. began economic sanctions against the new communist government in Vietnam. Food and fuel became scarce. Lay and his family moved to the countryside, into a swath of untamed jungle, where they attempted to survive off what they could grow or fish from the river. But the crises continued to mount. Soon Vietnam was mired in two wars, one against the Khmer Rouge and with China in the north. So by that time, uh, basically the decision, my dad's decision, was to get me out of the country, otherwise I would be drafted and sent up to Cambodia to fight the Khmer Rouge. Getting out of the country meant becoming one of some 800,000 boat people, as they're called. They were fleeing the new wars with Cambodia and China, or persecution by the communist regime for having worked with the Americans. They fled in the dark of night aboard boats built for the river, not the ocean. So there was like a Hail Mary run for the open sea. And it's, it's, it's assumed that at least 30% of us perished in the ocean. Sonny Lay was 15 when he and a few cousins of similar age squeezed onto a boat built to carry 60. It held more than 300 people. So there was three, we had three layers of people. So we had people hiding underneath of the floor and people on the floor inside the deck and then people on top of the roof. Lay's father and uncle had intended to be on that boat too, but they didn't make it in time. His mother didn't even know he was attempting the escape. We, we ran for the open sea and it didn't take long for us to gotten lost, probably within a few hours. We no longer had water, uh, fresh water, and anything to eat, and nearly everyone was dead, uh, literally dead, because seasickness, oh my God. You can't move, you throw up where you sit or lie, you defecate in place, and you pee in your pants. How long, how many days were you at sea? Four nights, three days or so. But that was long enough. Just when Lei thought he was going to die on that boat, they were rescued by an oil tanker. He was taken to a transit camp in Singapore and then Indonesia. And through a distant cousin in the United States, he was able to resettle to the San Francisco Bay Area. Still just a teenager, living in an apartment with a couple of cousins. Soon he got his first taste of American democracy when the Democratic National Convention came to town. The diversity on the stage, night after night, the people spoke about belonging, you know, Asians, African-American, Latino, Hawaiian. They were talking about this sense of belonging, this sense of purpose as one country. That was incredible. I couldn't wait. I wanted to vote. The very next year, Sonny Lay became a naturalized citizen. There's no denying that. The U.S. offers incredible opportunities. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I represent the U.S. government in six states, a refugee from Vietnam. He's worked for the U.S. Census Bureau since the 2000 census. He's also written for Asian publications in the Bay Area and worked in casting for the Joy Luck Club and other movies. Lay is glad for the education he was able to get. But even though he's happy with how life in the U.S. has turned out, it's bittersweet. You cannot replace 42 years without having your family there for you, to help you. From the time Lay fled on that boat in the dead of night, it would be more than a decade before he saw his family again. It took that long to save up enough money and for the situation in Vietnam to be safe enough for him to visit. He learned later that his mother cried nearly every day over the separation. I would have loved to grow up as, as an adult and to be there for my mom. That's it. So that's, that's the thing I can never redo. I cannot turn back the clock. Being the oldest person in the family, you do have some responsibility to your younger siblings. And I couldn't be there for them. I couldn't provide, you know, any kind of protection if they needed help from an elder, older sibling. For me, that's loss is cannot be replaced. Not a single day I don't think about the 
think about my family or what if every day, what if, what if, you know, war never happened? What if I still in Vietnam? What if the world's global powers hadn't made Vietnam a battleground in the Cold War over communism? And before that, what if colonial France and Japan hadn't occupied Vietnam? Imagine that it was one country so rich in natural resources. What if that, that country was allowed to develop on its own? The effect of war is permanent. It's forever. And the suffering doesn't end when the war stops. Trauma, displacement, separation, having to flee, having to forego, you know, having to be uprooted, all those things. We are surrounded by refugees, you know, whether they make peace with the U.S., with life in the U.S. or not, but that scar is forever. And uh, Americans, we are so lucky to not have been invaded that we don't understand what it means to be invaded and occupied or war waged on your homeland. We have no idea. I don't remember any time in my life when I have lived in peace. This is Yalda Royan. Twice in her life, war has forced her from her home. The first time, she was a teenager. I was born in Kabul and I grew up there. Even when I was a kid and I was going to school, the civil war was there and the rockets were hitting Kabul city. In the early 90s, the Taliban was able to take Kabul and gain control of the country. Afghanistan was no longer safe for Royan's family, who are members of a persecuted ethnic group called Hazaras. I was 14 years old when, when I first migrated to Pakistan. Life was not easy there because there wasn't any job opportunities for the migrants. So we were struggling with economical problems. So we were able to go to a refugee school. Um, When I graduated in 1998, there was no higher education institutions for refugees in the area that we lived. And then we were not able to uh, pay for the fees of private higher institution education. And then the government ones would not accept accept refugees. So my dream from childhood to become a doctor never took place. And I couldn't continue my education at that time. Right. I mean, your dreams were uh, not possible, your your educational dreams. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to be a medical doctor? Yes. Mm -hmm. It was something that I had dreamt of the whole time that I was a kid, but I couldn't do it. Then, September 11th, 2001, brought a change of fortune for Royan and her family. The U.S. responded quickly to the terror attacks. And by the end of that year, U.S. troops had toppled the Taliban regime and installed a transitional government. It was a relief to hear that there is no more Taliban in Afghanistan. So you were glad that the U.S. invaded to, to get rid of the Taliban? Yes, I don't call... Um, United States in interaction in Afghanistan or attacks on the Taliban as invasion in 2001, because that was a time that actually Taliban had invaded Afghanistan and we needed somebody to um, save people of Afghanistan who were the hostages under the Taliban's rule. So that time it wasn't an invasion, it was an intervention. Royan and her family moved back to Kabul in 2002. The effects of war were visible everywhere. And then after that, gradually rehabilitation started and then the, the cities changed their faces. The cities were getting be- more beautiful, more buildings, more construction. And you could see a lot of women on the streets. And that was a positive sign, yes. It was a, a very good start for Afghanistan in 2001. And a good start for Royan personally. Her young daughters were able to go to school. She became a high-profile advocate for women and minority rights. My passion has always been to work for my country, for the women of Afghanistan, in order to see a better life for them. 
Royanne also got involved in Afghanistan's emerging democratic process. I was a national field coordinator and my job was to register people for voter registration. It was the first time that I was seeing an election happening. So for me, everything was new and everything was exciting. I was working with with a lot of motive and excitement. But in time, her excitement faltered. America's presence in Afghanistan dragged on as the Taliban kept regrouping and resurging in pockets of the country. Yadur Royan had always been fine with America being in Afghanistan to fight the Taliban. But her feelings about America's involvement in establishing the new Afghan government were more complicated. She saw the U.S. propping up prime ministers that were not popular with the Afghan people. She blames a series of contentious elections for driving public trust in the government to such lows that the Taliban was able to take advantage, recruiting new fighters and rapidly regaining territory. Then came the betrayal, says Royan. When they started the peace discussions or peace negotiations with the Taliban in Doha, when they sat on the same table with the Taliban, while they knew that the Taliban have not changed, that's the time when we started objecting United States policies. We didn't want United States to stay in Afghanistan, but we also didn't expect it to hand over our country to the Taliban. Mm. When the United States intervened in Afghanistan, one of the reasons that they had given was that protection of human rights and women's rights. But what did they do in 2021 when they left? Do you know what's happening right now to the women in Afghanistan? Girls are barred from going to school over grade six. Women do not have access to um economic opportunities. They don't have freedom of movement. They don't have freedom of uh, speech. They have to cover their faces. They are literally removed from the public life. So was it the result that United States wanted to see after 20 years of spending all those trillions of dollars and the lives of the American soldiers that were lost in Afghanistan? Hmm. Was it the result that they wanted? Well, there are scenes of panic and pandemonium at Kabul airport. Today. On 15th of August, when the Taliban took over, the team who was working on the evacuation of the women leaders contacted me and asked me to go through a, a Kabul airport. It was just within maybe minutes that I had to to put 20 years of my life in just one backpack and leave my home. I had no choice. If I wanted to stay alive and keep my daughters, teenagers safe, I had to leave that country. What was it like at the airport for you? Uh, It was like hell. So I and my daughters spent eight and a half hours outside of the Kabul airport under the hail of the bullets. It was 10.30 in the night when we were able to reach one of those American soldiers and then we showed our documents and we said that we are on the evacuation list which is put together by the State Department and then we were allowed to get into the airport. So we spent two more days inside Kabul airport in a hangar with only one toilet a portable one for more than 60, 70 people without any place to sit, any place to sleep on. My daughters would just put their backpacks under their head as a pillow and then sleep there. They finally made it onto a plane with no idea where it was headed until the captain announced their destination after takeoff, Kuwait. Then they were sent to Bahrain, then Bulgaria, after an exhausting week in transit, Royan and her daughters boarded one more plane and got some welcome news. The captain announced that we are going to land in Dallas airport. And it was 23rd of August, 2021. And that's how I ended in US. What was, what was the, the most difficult part about becoming a refugee for you? What wasn't the most difficult? Hmm. <laughs> the question should be like this. I was a woman who had a job, who had income, who had a house, who had safety, who had social status. When I left my home, I became a homeless 
person with without anything, no job, no relations, no friends, no family, no home, no country, nothing. When I landed here, um, I had changed uh, from someone who was helping others to someone who was the recipient of help. And this transition wasn't easy. But for me, I had to grieve for all of these things at once, at one time. For my house, for my work, for my people. And yet you, being here is better than being in, in Afghanistan right now. Being here is in one way better than Afghanistan that I and my daughters are safe and are not at risk of being persecuted. This country is beautiful, Julie. It has everything that a person wants, but it's not my home. Will you go back to Afghanistan? The day that the Taliban are no more uh, in country, the next day my flight will be booked. Thanks to Yalda Royan and Sunny Lay for sharing their perspectives. Both believe there are times when war is clearly justified. They were glad for America's involvement in the conflicts that ruptured their lives. But those wars also left permanent scars. Many U.S. military veterans feel just as conflicted about war. They're proud to serve their country, proud to defend the defenseless. But they know better than most of us, even a just war carries a high price. Even the best of intentions can turn sour. There are many aspects of that final withdrawal that I wish would have been done better, particularly the fact that we left people behind who we shouldn't have, but we could not be there forever. It it was just not right for us to do that from any perspective. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. I can't tell you how many times we were thanked for improving the security situation. I can't tell you how many young kids thanked us for the fact that the schools opened and they were able to have something to do during the day and during the school year. I remember helping out a widow and giving her some food and she cried tears of joy and was just effusive in her thanks to us. This is retired U.S. Marine Captain Gus Biggio. He deployed to Afghanistan in 2009. It was his second stint in the military. I joined initially uh, right after college in the mid-90s, and the concept of service was something that was always important to me. There is an aspect of patriotism. There's an element of a sense of adventure and a sense of duty. Biggio spent just shy of five years in the Marines before retiring. I served well, served honorably, but knew that a career in the military was not something that was for me. So I got out and went to law school. He settled into a career in corporate law. He got married, was about to start a family when 9-11 happened. I will tell you that right after 9-11, I felt an emotion that I think a lot of people felt around the country, which was wanting vengeance for what was done to the United States. He was in touch with friends who had stayed in the military. And I have to admit that I was a little bit jealous of them. So that's one of the things that, that drove me to... Uh, contact a recruiter and and sign up again. But Biggio was in his mid-30s at this point. He'd been out of the military for more than a decade, and he had a wife who had not signed up for life as a military spouse. She was supportive, but she was also conditional. She said, I get it. I know this is part of your DNA. Um, This is going to count as your midlife crisis, so don't expect to go out and buy a motorcycle or a sports car uh, when when you get back from this. this. This is your midlife crisis. <laughs> um, how old were your kids at the time? When I deployed to Afghanistan, my oldest son was 16 months old. Uh, our second son was born while I was in Afghanistan. And I ended up meeting him when he was about uh, four months old when I got back. Do you regret having missed his birth? I do. It's, it's uh, obviously the birth of each child is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I, I think about that often. Um, it just happens to be that our patrol base got attacked by insurgents um, while I was talking on the satellite phone with my wife when she told me the news that our, our son had come. So 
yeah, I, I, I do think about that a lot and, and I do regret it. And um, I was really glad to meet my son a couple months later and shake his hand. Tell us about where you went in Afghanistan and what your job was. So in, in 2009, the war in Afghanistan was in its eighth year. And at that point, it was already being referred to as the long war. The strategy and the objective had changed several times. First, it was a hunt and kill mission. Then it was a counterterrorism mission. By the time I got there, it was somewhat of a nation building and a counterinsurgency operation. The Taliban had lost control of Kabul, but was still fighting and recruiting locals in other parts of Afghanistan. So the idea with America's counterinsurgency mission was to make life safe and stable enough that Afghans would resist rather than join the Taliban. Biggio deployed with a brigade of Marines to Nawa in Afghanistan's Helmand province. And it was a hotbed of insurgency. The local government, there was no local governance. The Taliban had driven them all out. They ruled by fear and intimidation, and it was very lawless. The Marines focused on security, which meant patrolling on foot through the villages day in and day out. Captain Biggio's work involved a lot of meeting with locals and distributing money for improvements. He found it really rewarding. And one of the very concrete examples of how our efforts led to clear improvements was the there was a series of cell phone towers throughout the district. But... The Taliban obviously didn't want people freely communicating with each other, so the cell phone towers were shut off, but we got to the point where they could start them up again. So people from the northern part of the district could communicate with people from the southern part of the district. And one day at one of the Friday markets, two farmers from opposite end of the district, one had a bull and one had a cow, and they had been in touch by cell phone and said, look, let's breed these animals. And they brought them into the district center, and they did that. So, you know, some people might think that bovine mating is not a a good way to judge the success of military efforts, but I was there, I saw it, I saw how the people communicated with each other, and I I can attest that, that that is, in fact, a decent metric of success in war. I was very proud of what we had accomplished there. Now, all that being said, there was always something lingering in the back of my mind that All these things were enabled because there were always Marines lingering in the background with body armor and weapons. And ultimately, when all of the Marines were gone, uh, the Taliban swiftly moved back in and, and took the place over again. Captain Biggio came home and retired from the military for good. As the years passed, he watched his Marine buddies deploying back to Afghanistan again and again. And it's sort of... In in my view, it it seemed like they were pushing the same rock up the hill every day. And and was there a point in the the last 10 years where you felt it was no longer a war we should be fighting? Yes, definitely. And and I I would say that it it probably came close to the time that my friend Haji Abdul-Manaf was murdered, and that was in 2015. When when we arrived in, in June of 2009, there was no government presence in in Nawa. Within a month after we got there, this gentleman, Haji Abdul-Manaf, he was appointed by uh, the provincial governor to take charge of Nawa. And he was just this great kind of very jovial, grandfatherly type guy, had a, had a great sense of humor, maybe a little bit um, off color. Uh, he, he was great. And he was, he was tireless. You know, he he walked around that district with, with the Marines and he met his constituents and he worked countless hours to hear what was on their mind. Um, and so it was just an awful day when I, I got the call. And that was several years after we had left. He, he was murdered uh, on a trip back from Lashkargah, which is the provincial capital, about uh, 25 kilometers away from Nawa. And by that time, the Marine presence was, was scaling back. And the the Afghan security forces were expected to do a lot more of their own security. He was a very successful and important leader. And I think, obviously, the Taliban saw him as a a threat, and, and, and so they killed him. Captain Biggio thinks America was right to go to war in Afghanistan, to go after the Taliban for having given safe haven to al-Qaeda as it planned the 9-11 terror attacks. 
and he'll always be proud of what he and the Marines accomplished during their time in Nawa. But at the same time, I was able to step back and look at this objectively as as a regular citizen and, and as a taxpayer and thinking, this has gone on for 20 years. Oftentimes, the the mission has never cl- been clearly defined, and we can't sustain that type of operation f- forever. 20 years is a heck of a long time. Um, it may sound a little bit harsh, but there had to come a certain point where the Afghans are going to have to do this themselves. The longer the U.S. stayed, the harder it became for Biggio to justify the war in his own mind, to justify the price people like his friend Haji Abdulmanaf were paying, and the price civilians were paying, and the U.S. soldiers and their families, especially families like his friend Bill Kurz. Bill had a similar uh, military experience that I did in the sense that he joined the Marine Corps late in life after 9-11. He was a 34-year-old recruit. Uh, Bill didn't have to deploy to Afghanistan, but he chose to. He was killed uh, on August 13th, 2009 in Nawa. Um, The last non-military conversation that I had with Bill was him telling me how he had just gotten off the satellite phone with his wife and she decided to tell him that he was gonna have twin daughters. So he never got to meet his daughters. That was was an awful event, obviously, for Bill's family. But, the, you know, the thing that made it painful for me was I had to call my pregnant wife and ask her to go to Bill's funeral and share her condolences with Bill's pregnant wife. Um, and I know that there were probably many moments of quiet reflection where my wife worried um, if they'd be having a, a similar event at Arlington Cemetery for me. So if I could get in a time machine and if I could go back and advise the George W. Bush administration, I would have said focus on the vengeance mission. Do not invade Iraq and focus on that capacity building of governance in Afghanistan. I strongly believe that if we go in militarily, that we have a moral obligation to help with a, a transition to uh, governance by by the people that we've gone there to protect against the, the, the threats that they faced. We can't just go in there and break everything up and kill the bad guys and then say, okay, our work is done here and pack up and leave. What do you think about the, the way we left? So I, I have mixed emotions on that. As I've stated earlier, there came a certain point where I thought this, this war and our presence there is, is not sustainable. I do think that the tactical effort of our final withdrawal was, was not uh, done, done very well. Uh, America failed many of those people. I had one person who worked very closely with us who was absolutely instrumental in some of the successes that we saw in Nawa when I was there. He eventually got here. He is in the United States with his wife and kids, but it was um, a horribly convoluted and inefficient process. So I'm, I'm relieved for him But at the same time, I know that for every person like him, there are others who didn't have that luck and and timing. And and that breaks my heart. Has your experience in Afghanistan and in the decades since you served there changed your view on when, what's a good reason for America to go fight somewhere else in the world? So there's... Two things that come to mind. One, obviously, self-defense is an obvious reason. When, when, when our interests and our borders and our people are threatened, we have an absolute moral right to defend ourselves. I personally feel that there is a justification for war when we are protecting people who are not able to protect themselves. I wish people had a better sense of the challenges and the costs of war. And it's not just the economic costs. 
but it's the emotional cost for the people who serve in war and the people who have family members serving in war. War, war is can be exhilarating. You know, the, the bonds and, and the friendships that are forged in, amongst people who go to war together can never be replicated through any kind of sports or other organization. Uh, that being said, it's incredibly taxing emotionally on, on the people who serve there. They've lost close friends. Uh, they've seen horrific things. Sometimes just by virtue of having to fight in a war, they've, they've done horrible things. And I think that the, the generic statement of, of thank you for your service doesn't quite cut it. I think that people need to understand this toll on the young men and the women who go out on the pointy edge of the spear and represent our interests and what that does to them. And then maybe we won't have such a grand enthusiasm to jump into to the next war without any clear objective of why we're doing it. Gus Spiggio is a retired U.S. Marine captain. He's got a memoir about his time in Afghanistan called The Wolves of Helmand, a view from inside the den of modern war. It's clear that the consequences of war are always devastating, even when you can make a moral argument that fighting is the right thing to do. But it's precisely because war is always so terrible that nations have made rules to try and limit the damage, says law professor Eric Jensen. Like you can't poison the enemy. You can't use weapons that are designed to uh, cause superfluous injury to the enemy. How to treat civilians in times of armed conflict, how to deal with the wounded and sick. Is there anywhere in this law that says this is when it's okay to go to war and this is when it's not? So that's another set of rules. Uh, what I was just talking to you about were the, the rules of war. Um, there's another set of rules that are, that are called the rules of going to war. Let's find out what those rules say. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Ever since there has been conflict, there have been rules. Eric Jensen teaches law at Brigham Young University. My last job was the chief of international law for the Army, so that gave me a pretty good perspective on how the U.S. government approaches international law questions. It depends how far back you want to go in history, but there have been lots of attempts to kind of regulate this use of force. Maybe one of the most notorious was the League of Nations post-World War I. World War I was brutal. In four years of fighting, an estimated 16 million people died, both soldiers and civilians. It was the first instance of widespread chemical warfare, too. And after the fighting stopped, nobody wanted to see another war like it. So after World War I, a number of nations, including most European nations, signed up to this League of Nations, which said, we will never be aggressors and, uh, and fight each other. The whole point of the League of Nations was to maintain world peace. Its members promised to reduce their weapons stockpiles and to not fight each other. It seemed to work except that, the part about we will never fight against each other. Germany and France agreed they wouldn't fight each other, but Italy didn't agree it wouldn't go attack someplace in Africa. And when some of these European nations began to take actions in Africa, that, that doomed the League of Nations to failure. If world peace was really the goal, members of the League of Nations needed to have said, we're not going to use aggression against other states. We're going to respect sovereignty no matter what state you are, whether you're a powerful state, a weak state, a state with resources, a state without resources. doesn't matter. Every state has sovereignty and Every state gets to be protected under this international law system. So the League of Nations fell apart. Then World War II happens. Which is League of Nations, nations fighting against one another. Exactly. So once, so once the League of Nations falls apart, then of course... Everyone's the, like, well, then, you know, all bets are off. That's right. We're, we're going. World War II lasted six years and was even more deadly than the first. And once again, the world said no more. Post-World War II, the victorious nations, Russia, China the United States, France, and the UK. They gather what nations they can, 50-ish nations, and say, we're going to sign up to this agreement, and this agreement is going to be even better than the League of Nations. It's going to say, you can't use force against anybody, not just amongst ourselves, but against anybody. Anybody who signs up to this charter, you can't use force against any other state. They form the United Nations and create an arm of it to maintain international peace and security. It's called the UN Security Council. And the five nations who were victors in World War II, Russia, China, the United States, France, and the UK, become its permanent members, the only ones with the ability to outright veto any decision the Security Council makes. 
And the United Nations founding document, its charter, bans war. It's prohibited for states to use force or even threaten force against one another. But there are three exceptions. Self-defense, consent, and the Security Council. Let's take them one at a time. You can always respond in self-defense if you're the victim of an armed attack. So, for example, think about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. The way that Russia tried to justify this as a legal matter was they said, we have Russian citizens who are living in Ukraine who are not being treated well. We're going to go into Ukraine to try and protect our citizens. This is a self-defense argument. Russia really kind of tried to to build this big story about how bad uh, Ukraine was treating these Russian people. And so um, President Putin says we've got to conduct a special military operation in order to uh, establish freedom for the Russian people who are in the eastern part of Ukraine and to protect them from the, the Nazis in Ukraine who are doing such horrible things. Now, the world didn't buy that um, at all. And in theory, it's the U.N. Security Council's job to enforce the law of war. It could deem Russia's invasion of Ukraine illegal and condemn it, impose some kind of punishment, or even authorize an attack by U.N. member countries to go in and shut down Russia's aggression. But remember, Russia is one of the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council with veto power. The United States uh, put a resolution forward about Ukraine, and Russia has vetoed uh, all of them. So, and so Ukraine is on its own to to wrangle support. Right, it has to rely on self defense or consent. So Russia claims it attacked Ukraine in self defense, and Ukraine also needs one of those three exceptions to justify fighting Russia. The self defense piece is obvious. Consent means that a nation can engage in war within the borders of another country if that country gives its consent, which Ukraine has also done, says Jensen. Now, no nations have joined in the military fray. No nations have exercised collective security in the sense that they have attacked Russia. But but lots of nations have joined with Ukraine in economic sanctions, in diplomatic sanctions, in providing weaponry and resources and intelligence. And so all of that action, in a sense, is kind of like uh, collective self-defense in that everybody's trying to help Ukraine defend itself. And so if a nation is under attack, it can invite whomever it wants to, to, to come and help it defend itself. Exactly. And then the United States then, if, if, if the U.S. is invited, then we're justified in joining that war. Just plain and simple. That's the law of armed conflict. That's right. Now, the third exception to the no war ever rule in the U.N. Charter is that the U.N. Security Council can authorize an invasion. Jensen says that's rarely ever happened because it's unlikely that Russia, China, and the U.S. will all be on the same page about something like that. But one memorable exception was in the early 90s when Iraq invaded Kuwait. And Saddam Hussein said this is now part of Iraq. And the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution that said, oh, no, it's not. We're going to give you a certain amount of time to pull out. And then if you don't, we're coming in to throw you out. Which is exactly what happened with a U.S.-led coalition of countries and Operation Desert Storm. So that's probably the cleanest example of when the United Nations Security Council has authorized the use of force. But that was in response to an aggression by another actor. Interesting. So can you think of any example of a war that has not that was not justified under the law of armed conflict? I mean, it seems like a country can come up with a justification, you know, like Russia saying maybe the international community isn't buying it, but technically it's a legal invasion if they can say, well, there's some Russians in there that we're going to protect. Well, you know, I mean, I think as the United States, we have to face that we have had some justifications similar to what Russia has done in the past as well. When you think about the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, um, that was based on a claim that there are weapons of mass destruction that might be used against U.S. assets or allies. Ends up that claim was false. Ends up that there were at least a portion of the U.S. government that knew that claim was false. But we used that as our basis for taking that action in Iraq. So it's not just Russia. I guess my point is it's not just yeah. Russia that stretches this. It's, it's lots of nations around the world who use this law to their advantage. So, so, so that would suggest, I mean, that, that feels like a pretty, um, I don't know what to think about that other than that the law of war seems kind of pointless. Well, I think that there's... If we're all just going to justify whatever, whatever <laughs> the nations want to do, however they want to do it. Yeah, that, that's a bit of a, a cynical approach from my view. Right? I mean, I, I would say, 
that saying that now it's all about might makes right doesn't recognize the fact that there are still really serious constraints on the use of force. Russia felt like it had to have a legal justification. It, even though it was a, a poor one, it had to have a legal justification. It couldn't just roll across the border. So what did it, it like file to. paperwork with the Security Council that said, we're doing this and this is why? It, it made public statements and it justified them in legal terms to try and keep the international community from bonding a, together against them, right? Which it was incapable of doing. Uh, the United States, I'm sure, would love to just, if, if there were no legal constraints, there are clearly countries out there who are doing things that it doesn't like. I mean, think about North Korea, right? The, the United States has to deal with North Korea all the time, knowing that they have nuclear weapons that could threaten their enemies. If there were no legal constraints, what would prevent the United States from just saying, fine, we're going to bomb that place and just destroy it and solve that problem? Well, civilians, for one thing. But the protection of civilians is really a legal constraint, right? That's that's part of the legal policies and law that constrain us from taking these just utilitarian actions that ultimately would be better for us, but but would be horrific. So you think that there has been less war as a result of, or, or that the wars have been less less damaging as a result of the the law of war and the existence of the UN Security Council? I think that's absolutely true. And, and I, think, I think it's fairly safe to conclude that the amount of interstate war has decreased under the UN regime and the significance of that interstate war has decreased under the UN regime. We haven't had a global conflict for, you know, 75 years. That's pretty remarkable when you think about it, given our history. We are in a day where a, a lot of war can take place without actually having soldiers on the ground. So with drones and guided missiles and satellites. Is a war more justifiable for a nation if it's going to mean less risk to actual soldiers fighting on the ground? So I have talked with military and government leaders from many countries who are less developed than the United States who have this as one of their primary concerns. As they, see, as they see northern hemisphere nations becoming more and more developed in their weaponry and in their ability to, to exercise state-level violence without risk to their, their soldiers, their sailors, their airmen and marines, they become very concerned that, well, we'll just be another, you know, obstacle in their path to taking over the southern hemisphere um, and, and taking all of our riches away. And I, I think it's a really great question. And I have talked with, with ethicists at length on this issue, but many will raise that exact point and say, the, the cheaper you make war in terms of lives of your citizens, the easier it is to trigger that war, to launch that war, because you don't have to justify that to the mothers and fathers in your country. Hey, I'm sorry your son or daughter was killed. Instead, you just say, okay, so we just spent a million dollars on a drone, but, you know, we, we've got a million dollars, and it, and it did this great thing, and okay, we can just justify that. Do you see international perceptions on this changing? Is, is there any change going on when it comes to thinking about how to have less war in the world? Well, I think there are maybe two ways I would answer that. The first is there's lots of dissatisfaction with the United Nations Security Council composition. Um, you know, people ask themselves, why aren't countries like India or Brazil or other countries on the Security Council and have permanent votes? And why are we still at those five countries? Um, the UK and France, maybe are the, that part of the West is maybe overrepresented. I think that international law itself is also being questioned because it seems to have much of its basis in Western notions. It's clearly come from Western ideals um, and, and doesn't always fit into non-Western or non-Northwestern hemisphere views. And people are reflecting upon that. Do, do we understand national security in the same way? Do we understand individual liberty in the same way? As people in Asia or Africa or the Middle East. Exactly. I think one of the most basic um, ways to contrast this is the idea of security versus liberty. In the United States and most of Europe, liberty is, when you, when you look at those two um, moral goods, liberty is preeminent. But in countries like China and other countries in Southeast Asia and some countries across Africa, security is important. And people will say, I would much rather have a few less liberties and live in a peaceful, calm, secure environment. And so trying to come to grips with that is ultimately an international law question because the way you fashion your legal norms 
depends on how you perceive those the answer to that question. Right, because if you're the U.S. and you think liberty is paramount, then you may want to go in and free the people of some nation because they have a dictatorship in charge. Exactly. But that dictatorship has provided perhaps a very stable, safe, prosperous experience for those exactly. individuals. Exactly. They might, they might like it because it's secure. It might not have a bunch of individual liberty, but it's secure and they like security. Eric Jensen is a U.S. military veteran, law professor at Brigham Young University, and former special counsel to the Department of Defense. I mentioned at the outset that we did not expect to land on a particularly upbeat note today. But here's something. Despite how easy it is to find a moral or legal or even cultural justification to wage war, fighting is not our default mode as humans. So... Mostly we're predisposed to cooperation. I think that's probably what anthropologists and biologists tell us are the the main thing about our species. Chris Blattman studies global conflict, and he just wrote a book called Why We Fight, the Roots of War, and the Paths to Peace. And he says the reason it feels like war is the go-to option for settling conflict in the world is... Partly because we pay attention to all the violence that does happen. So, So take... Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, two weeks into that, India accidentally lobbed a cruise missile at Pakistan and peace ensued. And they reported this in most newspapers, but you had to scroll through about 40 pages of stuff about wars before you got to the the peace. Um, and of course, you could write a story every day about why India and Pakistan didn't go to war. Uh, because they haven't for the most part for for decades, despite there being these incredible tensions. And so the actual natural state of humanity is to have adversaries. But, But I like to say that our natural state is to loathe in peace. The reason for that is simple. War is terrible. It's just so costly. It's like your least best option. Even when it's also completely justified. In fact, this question we've been chewing on all hour about when is war justified, is kind of beside the point for Blattman. If we want more peace in the world, we need to think about the decision to fight as a calculation. It's a country or a leader deciding to overlook the costs, the inevitably devastating toll of war, and do it anyway. So the more clearly everyone involved in the decision, including voters like you and me, understands the true cost of war, the more motivation there is to find an alternative. In two weeks here on the podcast, we'll be back with a closer look at what predisposes a country or leader to ignore the enormous price of war and what we could do to change those incentives. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops and Cole Cummings with help from Elizabeth Miller and me. Our sound designers are Christian Mockatel and Mitchell Towsley. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>